Turn in your Bible with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Continuing our journey through this book that has shown us so many things about our relationship to God and what that should look like, what that should involve. Today we want to look at the issue of the bases for making decisions. What, how do we make the decisions we make? Every, lot, every day in life we are called upon to, uh, to make decisions one way or another. The jobs we hold, the people we relate to, uh, the meals we eat. Lots of decisions come into play in our life. Some are big, some are little. Um, but it's important for us to kind of understand where we come from and how we function in relationship to those decisions. How do we make those decisions? And, and we see in our passage today, we see several different motivations, several different ways of making decisions. And, and I don't know that any of them are inherently bad. Um, well, perhaps... Uh, uh, some of Saul's bases uh, are, are off, indeed. But all of these have some level of um, appropriateness to them if they're bathed, if they're understood, if they're directed in the right way. Um, so let's take a look at the passage and, and dig into it and see, see what we discover here. It says, beginning in verse 1, Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, My father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. And when I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father. He said to him, The king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife Michael warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window, and, she fled, and he fled and escaped. When Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michael said, he's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David again. Bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. 
Saul asked Michael, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he has escaped. She answered him, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your guidance, your love, your place, your role in our lives. God, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts today. Help us just to see uh, the ways that we function, the ways that we operate that are not in accordance with your will and your desire. Help us to be responsive, Lord, to what you communicate. And leave here this morning with a renewed commitment to follow you. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So several decisions are made here in this passage. The first one begins right off the bat with Saul ordering Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. And, and this first result, this first decision, obviously is made out of jealousy, out of selfishness. This is not, obviously, the best way to render a decision, but how often is it the, the way we go, the route that we go in the decisions that we make? We, we, we may think that something, or we may know something deep, deep in our hearts really not good for us, but because someone else has it, or because someone else does it, uh, we feel the need to be a part of it as well. We, we need to keep up with the neighbors. We need to keep up with our friends. We need to keep up with everybody else. And it's born out of what? It's born out of a jealousy. Why should they have something I don't? We've seen it. Uh, we see it in toddlers all the time. You know, um, uh, they're fine playing until somebody else has a toy that looks fine, and then suddenly that's my toy, and they want that toy back. And and, and they'll do whatever it takes to get that toy away from their friend. They'll hurt them. They'll push them. They'll shove them. They'll do whatever they need to do. Sadly, however, we're not much different as adults sometimes. We push our way through things. We shove our way into situations, into circumstances, even when we know it's really not what we wanted. Even when we know it's really not what we needed. Saul here, as Jonathan points out, has enjoyed success because of David. He's been able to win victory after victory over the Philistines. He's been able to to hold power in his in his nation, in his country. He's been able to, to exert influence over his neighbors. Everything a king would actually want, Saul's been able to do because David has been in his military. And yet Saul here is pushing back against that, striking out against that because of jealousy. Because of selfishness. And where you really begin to understand that selfishness is taking hold and jealousy is taking hold is, is when you don't have regard for how your decisions affect others. Look how many people are put in a difficult situation from, from Saul's command here, from Saul's instruction here. You have Jonathan, his son, his son that he loves, his son that he adores, his son who is his oldest, uh, who he has fought battles with, who he has walked beside, who he has functioned with in as a father and a son function. They, they have uh, been together up to this point. Um, that's going to change in the days ahead for Saul. But up to this point, 
Saul has been, or Jonathan has been Saul's right hand man. And yet, he puts Jonathan in a difficult spot. I want you to kill your best friend. I want you to kill this, this guy that, that you've connected with. His servants, these people who have praised David, who have seen David fight uh, on Saul's behalf, who have seen David uh, fight the battles, win the battles. Now they're called to what? To choose between Saul, their king, and David, the one that they see win these victories. David's put in a difficult position himself. He's been called on by the Lord, been blessed by the Lord to, to minister to Saul, to, to help Saul through these difficult times, to play his music and to, and to serve and, 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 and heal Saul's mind and heart. And now David is put, what, on the outs because of Saul's decision. Saul's daughter, Michael, who's married to David, she's put in a difficult position. But Saul doesn't seem to care anything about any of those things. He is driven by his own desires, by his own commitments. So often that's what we see with people who are driven by jealousy. Reason goes out the window, as we said. Appreciation, regard for others around us. Even people that we're not jealous of, people who are walking beside us, we, we, we tend to downplay their role, their position in our life. as we pursue our own passions, our own jealousies. Now, jealousy has a place in life. I've said this before. I, I want to be sure and mention it again. Jealousy is an emotion given to us by God. It has a role. Its, its role is to preserve that which belongs to you. That's appropriate. That's necessary in a fallen world especially. We need to be protective of our spouses, of our homes, of our children. That's appropriate. That's, that is significant. But jealousy is one of those emotions like anger that can so easily become the controller instead of that which is controlled. Instead of us using it in an appropriate way to respond to threats to our family into our situation, too often it takes control of us and leads us down a path that's illogical and inappropriate. How do we render the difference? How do we understand the difference? How do we maintain the distinction? By trusting God. That will be the key to all the decisions that we see here this morning. The second basis for decision is, is our love for someone. See this with Jonathan. Jonathan loves David. He is, the, the, the text has told us that, that their love for one another is a deep, abiding appreciation, connection. They are as brothers. Jonathan has already shown uh, previously that he is willing to, to lift up David, to, to elevate David, to, to grant David the position of next in line to the throne from, from a human's perspective. That sort of selflessness grows out of love. And here we see Jonathan willing to put himself between someone that he loves 
and the hurt that they might experience. We see Jonathan motivated by uh, what's best for David. Highlighting and emphasizing that role and, and willing to, to be a mediator to his unreasonable father when it comes to David. And he, and he speaks uh, words of truth. He speaks words of clarity to Saul. So much so that Saul himself responds. He initially hears what Jonathan has to say. He hears the logic of what Jonathan has to say. And he submits to it. But don't, don't let that um, response fool you into thinking that this wasn't a dangerous move on Jonathan's part. We'll see in chapter 20 that, in fact, um, at that point, Saul turns against Jonathan too. He's unable to, to, to see the right, to, the, the, the direction that he needs to go anymore. And speaks some very, very harsh words to Jonathan in that passage. Love is indeed a beautiful reason to make decisions. There's a selflessness to it. There is an appropriateness to it. There's a patience, a kindness. You look at the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul gives us, dealing with the interconnectedness of the church and how we rely on each other. Love is a great basis. But even love can be misconstrued. Even love can be um, mutated, if you will, into something that's not appropriate. It, it, can, it can turn into obsession. It can turn into um, uh, an unwillingness to see the truth about a situation. A blindness to another's faults or issues. And so love, just as jealousy, needs to be submitted to God's direction and God's guidance as we carry it out. And not to just seek the well-being of the other person, but to seek the well-being in the context of what God would want in that situation, that circumstance. And that's hard. We see it all the time with with parents who are doing things for their children and, and they're, they're driven by love for those children. They're, they're driven by a desire to see their children um, succeed or to, to prosper or to survive or to get by. But they end up undermining the well-being of their child because that love and that direction and that guidance is not grounded in God's perspective of how life should be. Third reason, basis that we make decisions is the influence of spiritual forces. The passage tells us here in verse 9 that an evil spirit comes upon Saul. We've talked about the relationship of this harmful spirit before and, and its connection to God and its connection to Satan and all those sorts of things. We've, we've highlighted that. But it's important for us to see, it's important for us to understand that there are indeed spiritual forces that sometimes direct, sometimes tempt, sometimes 
lay hold of us in terms of uh, trying to impose their will on the decisions we make. I think one of the, the, the pitfalls of our modern mindset and our perspective is that we've lost any kind of concept that there are indeed spiritual forces at work. We've come to a place where we can explain everything through science or explain everything through uh, cause and effect. Ignoring the fact that there are indeed spiritual forces at work. The spiritual forces here cause what? They cause Saul to break an oath that he made to Yahweh. turn his back on what he promised God he would do. And the reason that the spiritual forces were successful here, the reason that they were able to, to overcome Saul is because he was unprepared for the battle. He wasn't in a place, he wasn't in a position, he wasn't in a circumstance where he could respond appropriately. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 to what? To put on the entire armor of the Lord. Why? So that we might be able to resist, to withstand, to, to fight against what? The, the, the attacks of Satan. There's a preparation that goes into who we are. That involves, involves faith, that involves the word of God, that involves trusting God, that involves worship, that involves learning and growing, fellowshipping. All of these elements are so important to our faith, so important to our walk, so important to our success, excuse me, our success as believers. And yet we treat so often our spiritual walk with the perspective that, well, I'm in Christ, I'm good to go. Forgetting that we've been called to grow. Forgetting that it is a battle. It is a struggle. As long as we live on this side of the fall, it's a struggle that we have to fight. And when those spiritual forces take hold, they, 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 they warp our minds. So that we find Saul referring to David Howe as my enemy. My enemy. Just moments before, he had seen the value of David. He had realized the, 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 the position of David. He had seen the help, the assistance of David that he had provided for him in his circumstance, in this situation. But now he is referring to David as his enemy. Sometimes we make decisions based upon experience or circumstances. This is Michael in the situation. How does she know to warn David? The text is very clear that, that Saul sends his troops to, to attack David, to, to get David, to uh, take care of David in this circumstance. 
But she forewarns David. How does she know that? She knew that because she knew her dad. She knew who he was. She had seen him. She had witnessed him. She had watched him many times before. His swings and his moods. And so she, she had her, her ears open, her eyes open to the possibility of what her dad may do. And, and when he acted, she was quick to respond, quick to get David out of the situation. And again, like love, this is a this is a an approach, this is a motivation that is appropriate. This is something the Bible itself advocates, especially throughout the, the, the book of Proverbs. To lean on wisdom, to lean on your experience, to lean on things that you have learned. It's part of how God has created the world. Proverbs 8 talks about God investing wisdom into the world order, into the world structure. That he used wisdom to create the world, and therefore we can use wisdom to respond and live within this world. And wisdom is built on experience. And so there is an appropriateness to this. There is a, 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 a mindset, a perspective in which this is proper and good. But again, it has to be embedded in a love for God. Proverbs chapter 1 tells us what? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of experience. We we begin our journey of wisdom and experience by first fearing, respecting, understanding, submitting to Yahweh and who He is. We're reminded elsewhere to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding and always acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. So this wisdom that's advocated, this wisdom that's directed here is driven first and foremost from a biblical perspective by our love for God, for our appreciation for what he has said, what he has instructed. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture, and yet what? By the end of his life, by the end of his kingship, he was very far away from where God would have him be. Why? Because some of the decisions, some of the experience that he was leaning on was not directed by God. The very first act that he carries out as a king is to marry the, the, the princess from Egypt. Someone who brings with her false gods. Someone who brings with her false belief systems. And by the time we get to, to 1 Kings chapter 11, it says that he had married multiple wives, all of which brought with them false gods. Now, from a humanistic perspective, Solomon was doing what was wise. He was what? He was building alliances with nations around him. He was built upon experience. The experience says you build an alliance, you marry uh, your, your neighbor's, child, so that way your neighbor is not going to attack you, and you 
You're building these friendships and you're building these alliances and you're building these connections. But that's only an appropriate step, again, if it's done within the mindset of God and the perspective of God. And so when Solomon does these things, he's, he's not bringing these women into a requirement or an expectation of submission to Yahweh. He's saying, come as you are. And as is often the case, when you bring someone into a marriage, when you bring someone into a relationship who's not a believer, most of the time, there are exceptions, but most of the time, it's the unbeliever who's going to be successful in leading the other away from God rather than the one bringing the person to God. So wisdom and experience has its place, but it's not the end all. The end all, the, the heart of this passage, is the reflection, the reality that we need to make our decision. However we do, secondarily, love, jealousy, influence, experience, we need to do that based upon God's direction. And as I did last week, I, I draw your attention to Psalm 59. Psalm 59 is a psalm that was written according to the, the, the superscript, at this very moment. As David's being chased from his home, as David's being chased from, uh, from Saul and from Jerusalem and from, uh, from the situation, he, he writes this, he composes this psalm. And he begins in verse 1 by saying, Rescue me from my enemies, my God. He starts the very first words out of his mouth are recognition that it's not Michael's craftiness, ultimately. It's not Jonathan's intervention, ultimately, that saves him from the situation, from the circumstance. It's God. He concludes his psalm in verses 16 and 17 by saying, But I will sing of your strength, and I will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I sing praises because God is my stronghold, my faithful God. David's motivation here is an appreciation, a recognition for God. He sees behind the scenes. He sees be, be, behind all the machinations of human effort and human perspective. He sees God at work. And he responds accordingly. Now, there's a there's a side note in this in this passage in the story that I think is important for us to acknowledge and to and to spend just a little bit of time on. It says in in verse thirteen that Michael took a household idol, put it on the bed. Well, this is a an, an interesting note. This is a household idol. It's it's obviously large enough to be mistaken for a human, so we're not 
we're not talking about huge, but we're also not talking about something that fits in your pocket. We're talking about something that's, you know, a bust size at least that can be put in the bed here. It's a, it's a, we, we know from archaeology, we know from other texts and so forth, it was very common in Israel in this time for them to, to have an idol in their house. And what I find interesting about this comment is that the text has said just a few verses before, this is David's house. This isn't Michael's house. She's living there, apparently. But this is David's house, the text tells us. And I think the writer is intentionally trying to make that connection. To specifically tell us it's David's house and then to specifically mention a household idol. Now there's several things, there's several nuances to the revelation here. The, the first thing I think the, the writer's trying to reveal to us in, in how the idol is mentioned and how it's used is that, that's, that idols are pale copies of humanity. That whereas Scripture tells us what? That we are created in God's image. We're created for relationship with Him. We're created for connection with Him. We're created for revelation of who He is. The idols are in our image. I think that's a, a big part of it, that, that this idol could substitute for a man tells us something about the, the true value of an idol. That's all it's really good for. It, it's not a god. It doesn't deliver. It can't help. All it can do is be a substitute for us. Ultimately, when you're bowing down to an idol, you're bowing down to yourself. That's what the passage is, is trying to communicate. That's a nuance of the passage. But what about the fact that, that, that David would have had this in his house? What, what about the, the reality that's revealed there? What does that say? Well, again, you need to understand the, the, the nature of an idol in Israel. It wasn't necessarily of a false god in their culture. Quite often, in fact, in most places, when an idol was created, it was meant to point to Yahweh. This was how they viewed things. When, when Aaron made the golden calf, what did he say? This is your God that delivered you out of Egypt. He's not talking about a false God leading them out. He's saying this calf represents Yahweh. And so this household idol was probably, at least in David's mind, a representation of the true God. Now that still breaks what we call the second commandment. Don't make any images of anything in heaven or on earth. It still breaks that command. It's still a, a, a breach of that perspective from God because when you connect God to an earthly thing, when you look at an idol and you say, well, this represents God, or a picture, you say that represents Jesus, or, or whatever it is that you do, when, if, you're, if your mindset's going there, then what? You're limiting God to your image, your perspective of who he is. You're making him controllable. You're making him manageable. And while most of us today, I'd probably say all of us today, would never do that with a, 
an actual physical idol, we do it mentally all the time. God has to be this sort of God. He has to be an American God, or he has to be, you know, this God or that God. He has to be part of our world and how we would frame him, how we would define him. That is human nature. That's sinful nature. David wasn't perfect in his perspectives of God. As much as God used him to write psalms, as much as God used him to lead Israel, as much as God used him to, to do some very great, magnificent, wonderful things in his name, David wasn't perfect in his perception and his understanding. And that should serve as both a warning and to some degree of comfort to us. But even though David was not perfect in this perspective, what? He was still a man after God's own heart. He was still a man who sought God, who followed God, who loved God. As we seek to chart our course through life, to make decisions, using any of these criteria, using these, these bases for making those decisions. There's going to be times when we don't get it right. There's going to be times when we don't get the mixture just right. That shouldn't stop us from desiring, from seeking, from pursuing God. When we make those mistakes, 1 John 1 9, we what? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. When we make those, dis those mistakes, we reevaluate, we reassess, we, we see how we might be able to, to make that decision better in the future. When we prepare our hearts and minds to, to face the spiritual onslaught, the spiritual forces that might come at us that will come at us when we start to walk for God. It's not perfection that God is calling us to. When Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, again, we, we misunderstand that phrase. We, we, we hear that, that phrase through the lens of a, of a Greek mindset, this ideal the word there actually means be who you were made to be, be mature, be whole. It says your Father in heaven is whole, is mature, is who we made to be. Walk that journey toward God. Continue to pursue God. Continue to recognize Him as your strength. Continue to understand Him as the faithful one. Be a person after God's own heart. Don't let the mistakes that you make, the sins that you commit, trick you or fool you into believing that you're incapable of serving. Repent. Grow. 
pursue. If there's anything David can teach us, it's that a very flawed individual can still be a person after God's own heart. Through the power of Jesus Christ, the influence of the Holy Spirit, we have advantages that David and those didn't have. We have power. We have direction. We have guidance that we're not at their disposal. But none of that does us any good if we don't use it. So the decision I ask you to make today is that I'm going to use the resources God has given me, including God himself, to grow in the decisions I make in other parts of my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your direction and guidance, your goodness in so many things. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of submitting to your control of our lives, the direction of our lives. Lord, we, we need to hear your voice today. Speak to our hearts, and if there's anything that's not right about who we are or where we're headed, help us to repent, to turn back, to commit to follow you. In Christ's name I pray.